That's my mic. Can you hear me, Chris? Yes, I do. Oh, excellent. <coughs> so um, I just uh, called up Chris. We were doing our, our show preliminaries here. And uh, <laughs> we'll continue a little bit where we left off last time, but we'll also do uh, uh, talk about other stuff. We, we left out a whole bunch of uh, stuff that was in the book because I hadn't gotten there yet or I didn't remember was it, what was in the last... Oh, 100 pages of X Descending. So I will ask a little bit about that, which I'm sure will be fine. And we can talk about anything because Chris is not, he's not here because, um, hey, I wrote uh, X Descending, although that's the main reason. The other reason is he's been doing this for many, 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 many years um, and has other interests besides. <laughs> besides I'm, we're old now. Yeah. <laughs> Get your hands up. There where you are. Don't move. Don't reach for them guns. Take it easy, you galoots. Put away the hardware and relax. What's Greg? in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? I love that intro. Where did you get that? <laughs> which, which part the of it? There's, that survived. <laughs> the first part with the uh, cowboys, that's from an old uh, Lone Ranger radio show, I think, that my sister-in-law found. She said, hey, there's a guy, there's a villain in this episode of the Lone Ranger named Greg. <laughs> it's not Black Bart or, you know, um, uh, uh, you know I don't know, uh, One-Eyed Dan or something like that. No, it's just Greg. So it's like, what the hell kind of name is that for a villain? So um, that's his gang sitting around the fire, and he and he comes, he sneaks up on him, and they they say, "Who's there?" Oh, why, it's Greg. <laughs> and uh, the other part is um, uh, for the opening from uh, Plan Nine from Outer Space, one of my favorite movies ever. Oh, I've I've seen that show. It is so so different, but I don't recall that opening. But that was terrific. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really 
it's low tech, low budget, and if you saw the movie that the Johnny Depp uh, played Ed Wood in the movie that uh, um, Tim Burton directed, I don't know about fifteen years ago, something like that. He plays Ed Wood exactly as I imagined him. Just like I kind of know it sucks, but I don't really care because I really have this vision I want to put out. You know, and I, I really respect that. I mean, there's a there's a there's an honesty in somebody just knowing that they're terrible, but they just go ahead and do it anyway. They're just like, well, I really have this vision to get out there, and people really have to see it. And it doesn't matter that the that the uh, headstones in the in the uh, the cemetery are cardboard and that they tip over when people walk by them. That doesn't matter. What matters is I'm getting this vision on the screen. I kind of have that um, about my show. I mean, there's all kinds of little mistakes. I'm always going um and uh. That aesthetic to me is that DIY aesthetic. It's like just go and do it. Doesn't matter if it sucks. Uh, doesn't matter if it's not a hundred percent professional. In fact, I don't like it when something sounds professional. It bothers me. Like you hear a, a podcast and somebody's, "Hey, this is so and so, and we're here with this program." It's like, yeah, I just that's not me, and I can't do it. Well, just think about it. You say Plan Nine from Outer Space. Everybody knows what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so he did something memorable for sure. Yeah, and that's the other thing. I don't know if he even thought it would be something memorable. I don't know if he thought it was like a huge masterpiece that everybody would talk about for you know decades. I'm, in fact, I'm sure he didn't even know that. And the thing is, it got popular probably a year or two after he died because it got put in that uh, um, the Golden Turkey Awards uh, uh, book with the worst films ever, like sometime in the... Uh, mid 80s because he died in 81 82 something like that or no maybe 78 late 70s he died um and then like four or five years later this book came out and suddenly everybody's like who's this ed wood and there was a big renaissance of ed wood nobody cared about him before he just he was just guy that made crappy movies crappy (laughs) forgettable cheesy dumb looking movies with stupid ideas and bad dialogue and horrible acting and everything so that's like the what's the the term jump the shark Everybody knows it's such a it's a term everyone knows now, and it from yeah. that one part of Happy Days where yeah, finally they did themselves in, but you end up with an episode where the whole definitive definition jump the shark pretty well tells you you're dying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know when. I guess he jumped the shark before he even started doing his films. I mean, he jumped the shark before he even <laughs> before the cameras were even rolling, um, but. You know, well, that implies that there was something good beforehand. I don't know if there was ever anything good. Um, Plan Nine was preceded by a whole bunch of other crappy movies like Glen or Glenda, which was about sex changes, and oh uh, Bride of the Monster, which had Bella Lugosi and Tor Johnson in it, playing I don't know a mad scientist and his and his uh, his uh, uh, zombie helper or something like that. It just the whole bad movie thing has always been you know very close to my heart. So. I, I carry it on in, in, in this show. Um, I mean, I, I like to talk to people about about things that interest me, but I'm also not interested in being <laughs> slick or commercial or anything, which is why I don't have – I'm not affiliated with anybody. I don't run – you know, I don't have ads. I don't put um, advertisements up really on my site except for selling shirts for the show or whatever. I'd like to stay 100% independent. I don't want to be affiliated with anybody. If I have to do that, I will, you know, they better pay me real well. And that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen <laughs> yeah. in podcasting unless you run the network. Then you maybe can sort of get by. Well, you know, it's like Mystery Science Theater. You only half watch it for the film. 
the other half is to listen to the things those people say. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah, stuff yeah. that comes across. So that's the yeah. point. Yeah, that's the whole reason for it. I mean, I probably you did too. I used to sit around with my friends and do the exact same thing, but we stank at it. But the, you know, uh, what's his name? The guy that started Mystery Science, he the, the, he's good at it. They, they, it's an art form to them. Well, I <laughs> one of my favorite comedies, Brainless TV was the old most extreme challenge that Takashi's Castle from Japan or someplace, but it came to the States and some guys did voiceovers in English and they would make up the funniest things. If you've never had a chance to see it, I don't know if you can ever find it, but it was always just voiceovers in the States. You know, they did a, they did a U.S. version of it that didn't go anywhere, but the Oriental version of it, which was really a game show, I think, in Japan – but when it got to the States and the guys that did the voiceovers in English and just said the craziest stuff you've ever heard, <laughs> that made it – it just – there are lines in that that I will remember forever. <laughs> yeah, and there was uh, – uh, Woody Allen did something in the early 60s. He took a Japanese spy movie and wrote his own dialogue to it. It's called What's Up, Tiger Lily. I did, have not seen that one. I guess I'll check it out. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, it was just some uh, stupid Japanese spy movie, but he turned it into something about uh, um, spies trying to steal a, a secret egg salad sandwich recipe. So, <laughs> good God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and the, oh, well. the Lovin' Spoonful, um, John Sebastian, wrote the soundtrack for it. So it's a very strange artifact of the 1960s. Jeez. Oh, well, people will buy anything, I suppose. If they'll buy pet rocks, they'll buy anything. <laughs> <laughs> it is yeah, funny. Well. I mean, I, I, I enjoy that film, but, it, you know, it's a professional version of what Ed Wood and uh, other people – God, there's so many bad mo- – nice science fiction and reg- just regular bad movies throughout the history of cinema. But uh, I think the golden age was like the 1950s, 60s. So that's where my uh, aesthetic comes from, I guess. It's like, don't take things so damn seriously. A lot of this is pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of the things that come out of this UFO phenomenon or the community, I guess you'd say. Yeah. It's pretty funny in its own right. Oh, I go yeah. back and look at the old Far Side cartoons just to get a laugh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised there's, there's got to be a Far Side person for ufology, except every, nobody would laugh. They'd get offended really quickly. I saw a cartoon a friend sent me today, and the the caption was, Why We Don't See UFOs. And it was a shot somebody had done up really well. It looked like a real photo of a flying saucer way up above the clouds. But it has a cutout, like a plywood. You can tell it's a plywood frame of a like a 727 with a wing. And it's all bolted and strapped to the side of the flying saucer so when you're looking at it from the other side you think you're seeing a 727 or a jetliner going by but on the other side it's a ufo that's why we don't see them yeah oh well i've seen that one yeah exactly uh let's see chris is a former i don't know where i pulled oh you know what i pulled this off the coast site (laughs) off coast to coast (laughs) Chris Lambright, who I met um, uh, finally met for the first time a couple of months ago at the uh, the Dulce Base Underground Base Conspiracy Conference, I think that's what Rick Vargas called it in Santa Fe. Um, former investigator with Kufos, um, and uh, worked on the on Kufon Computer UFO Network, 
He holds a degree in psychology from Baylor University and worked extensively in computer technology and internet services. Has a background in graphic arts, which we talked about with your book uh, with X Descending last time, and illustration. Oh, one, one thing that um, – or let me, let me say a little bit about X Descending. And I got this straight off your site. X Descending documents how a private study of an unpublished daylight multi-witness UFO movie filmed by veteran UFO researcher Ray Stanford resulted in a major aerospace propulsion breakthrough. Until now, no book could show that aerospace propulsion science has directly benefited from studying UFO film. But uh, the evidence uh, – Chris has uncovered the evidence in X Descending and goes into depth on documenting how it occurred and what he found out. X Descending also talks about Paul Benowitz, which is why I had a lot to talk about with Chris, and we still do, um, with a startlingly detailed, hitherto unpublished color film frame in images clearly revealing that whatever objects Benowitz saw and filmed at the Manzano Weapons Storage Area at Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico were exotic, technological, and nothing with which we are familiar, even today, except maybe if you know about the, um, the laser pro- pulse laser thing we talked about, which we will recap a bit. Included in the book are a discussion of Benowitz's early experiences and a serious examination of the counterintelligence effort to suppress the evidence of what he had seen and filmed. And you added this book names names, which it does. For better or worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When X Descending came out, what was the reaction? Like a big nothing, or did people bar- yell at you, or what happened? Basically, the reaction has been positive. I realize the limit, the limiting factor has been that it's a digital book, yeah. and I have all the time. I keep thinking I'll go back and publish it. And of course, lately, because of some of the Socorro stuff, there was an addendum I put in on Socorro, so I keep trying to think. Well, I'll wait in case I need to revise or update some things. But uh, being a digital book does make it a little bit more problematic for some people to actually get and read unless you have a tablet or you can sit and read a PDF or whatever else. But the reason that I I had actually gone down and talked to a publisher or a printer um, and was ready to get it printed, the issue came down to wanting to be able to get the illustrations in a in a way that you could see them with a good colors and with blacks or blacks and whatnot. And you can do that for the most part on tablets and uh, digital devices. Where yeah, that's, really that's, so you pretty definition. much know what you're going to get if you just preview it on your own di- tablet. Yeah, and if you go into print, then you get into the issue of if you want it printed on – well, at the time. It, it's possible to do it much more economically if you find your own printer who can collate the paper pages where the text – you know, the regular white printed text pages – with glossy color print images for the illustrations. Generally, at least back when I was working on all this, when it, if you wanted even to have any chance to go to a publisher who could either do on-demand or otherwise, it was going to be all or nothing. You either have all the pages done in the glossy format, which pushed the price up yeah. way, way too much for what I wanted. Yeah. So I figured I'll wait until... You know the the time comes or another time maybe when the industry has changed enough where now you can go get it printed, but um, but so that's probably held back a little people from getting to it. But um, but it's out there and believe me, there are places I've seen it where it shouldn't be out there. But if you look, it was never about the money. So if somebody finds it, wants to read it, that's what it was for. Um, uh, these days, I'm hoping things are changing a little bit. You know, there's. The whole issue with people coming out, and I think perhaps one of the best things to come out of the recent To the Stars 
um, news is that we've got reputable people now whose names are on the line. They've come out and owned up to the fact that there is something out here. So I'm hoping that some of the names or the people you know in the book that I've written about at some point will just step up and at that point come out and acknowledge you know what's there and um, then it won't be so hush so hush hush you know I mean I suppose because I delve into the the one thing I do want to make clear I guess in case people wonder why I picked the two films that I chose it wasn't just two random films it was films that ultimately both tied into if I can phrase it this way individuals who knew enough uh, getting offered grants to work with what what would now be called the Air Force Research Lab Um, Kirtland with Paul Benowitz was at the Air Force Weapons Lab at the time and of course now it's part of the it's the I think it's the Space Vehicles Directorate with the Air Force Research Lab Right. But um, but the point was these were two films that had nothing to do with each other per se. I mean they were totally separate, unrelated films. Uh, Ray took his down in Corpus Christi, Texas, and of course Paul Benowitz in Albuquerque. And once you begin to tie the names into the, how they connected with the Air Force Research Lab and – a lot of people today whose names are much more out there than they were in 2012 um, or beyond, people who everybody would recognize if you followed any of the recent news. Um, yeah, well, And I suppose, I suppose it's a concern that I realize if you know, people who don't know me, I have no bone to pick with the Air Force or anybody at all. Um, in fact, if it matters, no, this isn't a crusade. What you did, it's it's more like um, let's fu- let's find out um, what happened. Get get a timeline in here and see how these how these forces all came together to create what we know now as as uh, one the Benowitz story, and two government's involvement, at least parts of the government's involvement with the U.S. UFO subject, and um, three. Another important part of your book, which you were referring to about a film, um, Ray Stanford's film, which I got some feedback on the last one, and they said, well, nobody should pay any attention to Ray anybody because he's never going to show the damn film, and it's really frustrating. And my answer was, I've talked to three people that have seen the film, you, David Perkins, and Chris O'Brien, all three of whom I don't think are wide-eyed believers in anything. And it's unfortunate that Ray will not show this film to people unless they come to his house. And then, of course, they have to go through apparently some sort of long lecture about how his life began and why he's interested in this and, and how, the, um, uh, how his group got together and what equipment they had and all this other stuff um, instead of just watching the film, uh, which he will show to you. But the three people that I know have seen it who are, like I said, not wide-eyed believers say, look, this is actually fairly clear film of something that's really weird. Very anomalous. It's not something that, that Ray faked. I, I, it wasn't uh, within anybody's uh, capability to fake it in the way it looks uh, as it's been described to me. So if we take that as uh, something that we should we can, um, I don't know, count on, but at least say, look, it's not a hoax, uh, probably not, uh, at least uh, from my point of view, and then work from that and see what we can get. And you're the only person that I know that has done that in saying this looks kind of like the stuff or in your words, probably almost exactly like the stuff that Paul Benowitz was filming. You're the only person I know that's ever made that connection. It doesn't sound out of line to me at all, especially when you read the book. 
So that that's what we were talking. The two films you're talking about, in case people didn't know, are Ray Stanford's film of some anomalous object, uh, disc-shaped object flying sideways through the air with some sort of a light, a light, a spike of light coming off one side of it, and the other film, uh, the other film or films are Paul Benowitz's film or films of whatever was taking off. Uh, at night in 1978, 79, near his place in Albuquerque, right near Kirtland Air Force Base, which was um, involved in uh, laser research in many aspects. So this the, this would fit in with some more of their uh, laser research. Well, if I can did, clarify, did, is that is that uh, what did I say that was wrong there? Well, <laughs> it it is the beam. In the object that Ray filmed, I don't see a direct correlation to what Paul Benowitz filmed, basically at all. It, oh, you're okay. correct. You're correct that there was a lot of the Starfire optical range um, laser research down at uh, the Cortland area was definitely going on, and it's true that from the documents, what, we, what, what has been said, what you wrote as well. That uh, Robert Fugit, who I believe at the time was director of the Starfire Optical Range, apparently had some interest or was taken into Paul's house at some point to look at some of his equipment. But I don't believe, as far as I know, there was any correlation to be made, and I've never seen any, between laser research, Starfire Optical Range, whatever was going on in the Kirtland area, which was basically directed energy for purposes of defense or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, it's whether there is some reason to connect the presence of the objects that Paul Benowitz filmed with the, the entirety of what might have been going on around Kirtland, that's the question. Um, but of course, they were on, so to speak, they were on Paul's side of the mountain. They were not on the other side where the Starfire optical range wasn't even visible from his house. Right. They were landing in an area that, you know, why would they be there? Why would they come in and stay in that area for hours on end and leave before daybreak? Um, the best I can count is at least three or four times sitting for several hours while Paul was watching them. The objects that Ray saw, um, I still say to this point, <laughs> I'm kind of – I get stuck on it. I think in some ways I can appreciate you know, the, the, the tic-tac videos in favor of the pilot thinking, what the hell is this? You've never seen anything like this. What, Ray, what I saw that Ray had filmed back in 1985, several objects, a procession of these things, and the last one was different from the first ones going overhead and he filmed them with on basically on an edge full flat surface of the disc in the direction of travel with this pulsing beam that every so often would compress and fire outwardly I'd, I don't know whether you would have been able to see it as simply a steady beam or you would have caught the fact that it's pulsing but if I'm not mistaken from having looked at the images that Ray's worked on as well it's pretty obvious that um, that this is somehow building up on the surface and compressing and firing out a pulsing rapid beam out in front of this object that appears to be moving the atmosphere out of the way. So that's not to say that's what was keeping it up. That's the other, you know, question, the flip side. Something was keeping these objects up in the, you know, flying. They had some means of a positive lift, I guess you'd say it. But this beam that's firing was firing out from in front of them that appears to be 
creating a low density bubble, if you want to call it that, around them that allows them to potentially fly with no drag at all. Um, that's something in his films that I had never seen anywhere. And whatever anyone wants to say, believe me. I mean, I've I never cared too much for my background in psychology until after I wrote the book. <laughs> and the more I've seen about the, the community and the and honestly, as we grow older and you begin to look back at your life and you look forward and you think the people who have maybe have never come to the realizations they wanted, didn't get all the answers they wanted, you know, and you begin to think maybe you have a little more open look at things. But what Ray filmed, differences aside, whatever anybody thinks about anybody else, I stand behind Ray. I mean, I'm not saying he's right 100%. I'm not right 100%. It's not a matter of, to me, it's not a matter of being right. It should always be a matter of getting it right. Yeah. I have a feeling the last time I talked to Ray that maybe he's reaching that point where he's realizing, you know, it's time to just put this out there. He's had amazing success and gotten a lot of credit for his visual acuity from the, you know, the paleontological finds that he had around Goddard and people who have credit out credit have credentials out the wazoo who have seen what Ray has done. And that guy should get an honorary degree from for that. So the fact that he has proven himself in that should lend a whole lot of credibility to what he is at least has to show. Interpretation is one thing. We all know, it, you know, sometimes you interpret things and it may turn out to be something else. But what he's got on film is something that as far as I was concerned, especially having seen it in 1985, now here we are almost what 30 years later and we still see nothing like this. That's not us. I, and I dare say, that's not a drone, not six of them flying over Corpus, not what he's got on film. And frankly, that film, the only, like I said, the reason I mentioned that film is because of what I found out about develop something that had been developed because of the film, someone else who saw it. But Ray has films that show any number of things. And, don't, and I try to always make this point. Don't anyone assume that Ray just goes out and gets films all the time. This is a lifetime of, and I mean, I you know, you could count how many. It's not like every day. I mean, if he's he's how long has Ray been around? Now he's in his seventies. He just happens to have paid attention, and he carried the camera with him all the all that time. So yeah. he's been able to get what he says he would get because he paid attention, just like with the dinosaur tracks. They were there all along. Ray simply was able to spot them because he has that. Is, well, I don't know, the way his mind is wired to recognize certain things or be observant. But even in the case of the objects in Corpus that I'm talking about, <laughs> the funny story was it was his children who saw them. The children, he had taken them down on the coast. And from what I understand, he had told the kids, if any of you ever, either of you ever see something interesting and tells me about it, I'll give you $10. Yeah. You bet that made them observers. And the children <laughs> were the ones who pointed out, what are those things? And Ray almost dropped his... From what I understand, dropped his camera, almost dropped it in the in the ocean trying to get the camera out. You know, uh -huh. but, but the point is, if you see it, if you see these things, and that's why I'm a big believer. Anybody can say anything they want to, but if you go see, now you're right. I mean, Ray has his way of wanting to present things, but I won't say. You know, for all the times and Ray and I have been friends over the years, and I aggravate my friends right and left. I, <laughs> I know yeah. we've had plenty of arguments, and uh -huh. I. 
I don't know why I do that. I guess I just am a stickler on certain things. But it's, I think, turned out fairly well for Ray and me. He would send me images because he knew I would put them through the ringer. And if I couldn't see it, I would tell him. It's so plenty of them. Oh, yeah, you can see it all right. It's not hard. And it's just, and I don't know how to explain it. I mean, that's why, but that film, that film was unique because of the connection that I, you know, that I just stumbled across one one night, stumbled across one night years ago um, on the, on the, on the web. And I sat on it for, I guess it was 10 years, perhaps, maybe, um, when I first had found out about this film and the connections that I made in the book. And, um, I didn't, you know, it was a story to tell, all right, but that wasn't the point. And finally, I censored myself. I told Ray, I said, I don't want to out anybody if it's something that's potentially going to be something good. But it apparently wasn't the right time back then to do it. Today might have been different, and I'm hoping maybe at some point, you know, it will all come out. I mean, it was a difficult decision to, to, to write about it because I, to me, the idea of just publishing something for the money or popularity. I don't think anybody can ever say I've done this for the popularity. I mean, <laughs> it was just after all that time, there really was a, you know, when it's, <laughs> I was thinking about this today. It's ironic because at what point do you say something? What point is the time when you decide, okay, I just can't say nothing any longer. I can't do, I can't. Um, the whole idea of, and I, not to bring it back up, but the idea of um, Lou Elizondo at his desk, at the ATIP desk, and realizing, why aren't they looking into this? Why is nobody paying attention? Why aren't we doing this? Should be, But the premise of the whole program was that if you don't know what it is, you have to perceive it as potentially a threat. If you don't know, if nobody's telling you, what do you do? Do you say nothing? Maybe you need to say something and the right person will hear it and do something about it. So at some point, you make the best decision you can at the time. And maybe later on, there are plenty of times since I wrote the book that I've, you know, could there have been a different way? You know, it's never been my aim to out me. And I think to some extent, maybe people who don't know me see me as an as anathema because I wrote this book that made connections to the Air Force Research Lab where other people also have had some connections and I've named some names and maybe that makes me someone that they see as, well, like I said, that they don't know me that, you know, whatever. But um, but Ray's film is, you know, the, the, the I kind of went over a little bit of this when, uh, when we met in uh, Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially when, when the woman began to ask me the question and I knew, whoops, I'm on it now. Um, Ray's film, when I say not us, that was a very that was a tough sticking point to try to decide because if it's what's what are we going to be able to do fifty years, five hundred years from now, if there's some other way that what we're seeing is some other technology that allows us 500 years from now to come back momentarily and, you know, instead of just remote viewing it, you're viewing it real time because you're able to get back here and see, you know, what's going on. Well, then it technically is us, but it's not, I call it not us here now. I mean, not us based on our current levels of technology. What Ray filmed, I don't think so. 
and plenty of other things Ray is on film that I could name. <laughs> anybody, if you ever ask anybody who's ever seen this image Ray has that we refer to as Gort from the old Day the Earth Stood Still film, because mm-hmm. the, this figure in this, it's, it will raise the hair on your arm because it's a still shot from a film in a frame and it's not we're not talking Star Wars nuts and bolts the whole thing but when you look at it and it hits you you'll think this is not right whatever this thing was somehow you know it just opens the whole realm of I have no explanation for it but there's something else here let's put it that way what Paul Benowitz filmed I struggled with this in the book because at the end of the day not just what he saw, what he filmed, but where he filmed it, right. the fact that whatever it was was coming and going from that area, nobody was shooting at it, and it was he could see it easily from where he was. So from, let's say, mile, two miles away, he's able to actually see it with his eyes. So you got photons that are coming at you. He can film the whole thing. He can see them fly off. I don't think uh, you'd have to really stretch some way out there physics to decide that, oh, sure, but nobody else on Kirtland Air Force Base could see them. No, I don't buy that. If Paul could see it and they didn't know Paul was there, anybody on the mountain, anybody out there would have known these things were coming and going. And my sense is, is, you know, like I've heard it said before, it was Paul who wasn't supposed to be there. Whatever Paul was filming, I don't know who built it. But something tells me, you know, <laughs> there was some collaboration. There was some whatever whatever Paul was filming was allowed to be there at the time. Whether that means we knew about it and we were flying it, or whether we were involved with it, I don't know. But that's a whole different way. Occam's razor to me says Paul filmed something we had going on out there. Yeah, whether well, we own those objects or not is the question. Yeah, and well, you did compare it to um, somebody, who, uh, Mirabeau, who had gone out and talked to Ray and then worked on this uh, laser propulsion thing. And you said it has. Uh, I'm not, I hope I'm not getting this wrong. What what Paul filmed had a lot of the earmarks of something that was uh, no, no. That's r- nope. That's wrong. <laughs> at least at least make sure I understand. Paul Please. filmed objects or vehicles. I think it was very clearly vehicles. Um, because keep in mind at one point he saw what he felt was certain was somebody with a flashlight, like a flashlight, like object that you could tell, like when someone's walking around out there and that underneath one of these things and the lights bouncing around, right? He mentioned, he mentions that he saw something flying, somebody with a flashlight. Yeah. I think I put that in the book actually. Yeah. So, so the idea being, I think it's fairly conclusive. They were vehicles of some, some type. Um, but the mode of operation, if I can call it that from, and I'm just going by what I've was able to kind of pull out in the images, which to me clearly seems to indicate there's some type of massive field. I don't know whether it's plasmas that are happening around the objects that uh, Paul was filming that clearly seem to bulge upwards you, know, you get this kind of a – like this solar flare kind of an effect, which gives it that odd derby look when it's very bright on film. It looks almost like the top is really bulbous and rounded and the bottom is relatively flat. Right. 
the vehicles were, uh, you recall the images in Santa Fe, the vehicles themselves were lenticular, I think was the way Paul described it. So you have basically disc-shaped vehicles. But something about the generation of the f- power field or whatever, whatever the right term would be causes these st- striking-looking effects going on up above it that generally tend towards the yellow-red ends of the spectrum. Whereas the underside, and especially as the thing seems to be changing direction, you can clearly see there's a very, a very iridescent bluish tint that will tend to shift to one side or the other, as though the you know the movement to one or changing the polarization of the field causes a shift in the spectrum, or at least different energy levels underneath tend to shift towards the blue and the upper areas. When you get down into it, you see these streams going on. The point is. Maybe that is something that a person who is very knowledgeable of that would recognize something in what's producing that kind of an effect. What Ray filmed – I'll back up for one second. The only emission, I guess if you wanted to call it, from the Paul Benowitz film seems to have been when the objects did what Paul referred to as translating movements. Um, notably, when they took off, you'd get this – blue-greenish spark-looking effect that almost – you can see a pulse regime in it, almost like two or three pulses as it took off. Um, there's one image where it appears to be – and I think you have this image as well – appears to be in flight where if the object shifts direction, it seems to generate this pulse as well. What I don't know is if that lingered for a length of time or whether it was just so quick in one or two frames, and that's why Paul caught those frames because you can see this effect generated. So maybe it wasn't something that would last, but it did seem to have something to do when the objects made move, made drastic movements or stark movements, directional or taking off or whatnot. Ray's objects, on the other hand, and uh, if I recall even from when I first saw them in 1985, this was before computers and Photoshop or anything like this, I had actually – met Ray because of our mutual interest in the Socorro case. And I met him at a conference and then later he invited me down to Austin and it wasn't until about 85, I think two, three years later, I finally made the drive down there. And um, he was just getting ready to move to the Washington area. I think he'd gotten married and he was selling his house. But I got down to see him in uh, early 1986, I believe it was. And we're looking through his albums of all his photos. And that's when he said, oh, let me show you this these f- images, this film that uh, from this film that I got, I think it was about six months ago, some like October of '85. Um, and so he put this slide screen up, and I sat there and he turned the projector on, and you no know, bright blue sky with this small object in the middle of it, and you know, <laughs> in the book I described it as everybody has a BS meter. You know, you can look at something. <laughs> yeah. Heineck used to refer to escalation of the of hypothesis, right, or de-escalation. But you can just see something, and you start going through your mind really quickly, trying to rattle off explanations what it might be. But I'm telling you, that was when I remember standing there, and I think I aggravate my friends sometimes because I don't want to be anybody's fool. <laughs> I used to laugh. I was a little brother. My big brother would always play jokes on me. So I didn't want, <laughs> so I don't necessarily buy into anything just from the get go. But when I was seeing Ray and he showed this image on film, I stood up and got up there right up next to the slide screen and looked at it. And I remember thinking, man, when this comes out, it will change everything because this was not like anything it's not like anything you would even fake if you wanted to fake 
a UFO video. You would do something that people would accept. You would do something that, may, you know, in this case, here is this object pancaked flat into the go forward with this beam pulsing out of it. And the one thing that I do vaguely remember was that in different frames, he had, of course, taken different still shots from the frames. Um, and I'll defer to Ray when this all finally comes out. But I do recall thinking that the surface of this, this object was a little harder to see. It was like covered, you know, covered with a kind of a cloudy mist. I'll just call it a plasma for whatever reason. But it, eventually you would begin to see this begin to compress. And there was some, if I recall, what I thought of as some small kind of structure it was vague and hard to see, but that seemed to be dead center, like one candle in the middle of the candle cake, right? One small structure, this cloudy material would compress and build up inside this right at the very center on the front facing forward of this object and suddenly squeeze out and pulse out into a beam, a tight beam straight out in front. And when it did, I believe you could get a better, little better look at the surface of what this, uh, you know, was there. And, um, and it, to my recollection, then this is why if people look at the cover of my book, I had one person, Robert Hastings, actually ask me, the thing on the cover of the book is not perfectly circular. It's kind of hexagonal or, you know, it's got little edges to it. And that is one of the kind of the characteristics, the ideas that you get a look at from whatever this thing was Ray had filmed. But the, the point was, this was like a procession of six of these things that would come across. One would come across and almost get to straight overhead, if I recall, um, and then turn and head up into the wild blue. And the other one, another one would be coming along. And Ray was filming. I think he said he got four of them on film before he ran out of film. But these things would basically do the same general move. Um, the last one, from what I recall, he said – Slow. The, well, excuse me. The next to last one. There were six that appeared to be the same type, if I can say that. The last one seemed to be different, and I think the description that I have in mind was like the like an hourglass, but it was seemed to be rotating, I guess, in a horizontal plane, rotating very, very quickly. But it would it came along last of all, and the, the next to last of these other objects, the beam ahead, is what we generally refer to them as slowed down, if I recall his description was, so until this other one caught up with it, and then the two of them moved off together. Obviously, there was something else keeping them up. They were flying using some other, you know, some other... Something power not, not aerodynamic. Some, and not, Something, yeah, something that generated positive lift that apparently was not strictly... I mean, they weren't flying because of this pulsing beam. So there's a very... An important distinction that I want to make sure, because I think in the last couple of times, and not with you, but in the past in conversations, I've realized maybe it needs to be very well clarified. The beam that seemed to be pulsing ahead of each out of the center of each of these objects, um, and as I mentioned, Ray has done some really really nice enhancement now that we're into digital, you know, imaging and computers, and he has time and has spent hours really enhancing these images, and you can see. The indication almost like a fountain as the beam spreads out and apparently the atmosphere seems to be pushing out of the way and you get this curling back effect. Um, what was really interesting even, not to go on a little tiny side subject here, while I was working on the book, I found some fascinating um, 
studies, experimentation that had been done by a gentleman named Kevin Kramer from, uh, I believe it was the University of Phoenix, if I'm not mistaken. Don't quote me on the Arizona. Anyway, mm-hmm. in Arizona. Yeah. Who had, who had actually done some experiments in which he was able to show that he could pulse energy along a corridor, just like we're talking about, along a corridor, and it would basically shock the atmosphere out of the way. Uh, by corridor, but, just meaning it was a, it was energy directed out uh, in front yes, of the object. Direct, exactly, exactly. Let's in, just say in the air, in the ambient air. Yeah. yeah, in the ambient air. But if you push it out there with enough energy, as it expands and it blasts the air, so to speak, out of the way, or I don't. I even say blast. That's a, probably I shouldn't use that term. For all I know, you're peppering something into the atmosphere, and there's a field that you're also generating, and you're just having the atmosphere now move out of the way. But in the case of Kevin Kevin Kramer, I believe he even said like a surfer riding right at the right spot on the wave, so he doesn't fall, but he doesn't slip back. At that point, the wave adds push. Yeah. And in the case of what he was talking about was as the uh, as the bubble begins to collapse behind your vehicle, the collapsing behind the vehicle on the rear surface adds impetus. And it was an amazing I – mean, people should look, look up his articles. The guy's brilliant. But anyway, needless to say, the beam that's firing seems to be is, – is an one unique characteristic, let's put it that way, of these objects that Ray got on film, a characteristic – that I'd never seen before. Um, when the research that subsequently was written that kind of tied into this, of course, the big question we had, and in one, of, I think I mentioned it in the book, one of the articles that uh, had been published by a gentleman, I believe he was working for NASA, who was looking at all of these futuristic technologies. The problem still is, how do we produce that kind of power? You know, what kind of object would you, how much weight would it take for you to have it on board, the capability we didn't have any way to we didn't have a capability to do that right now, and we don't have space-based or even Earth-based means if you were going to somehow project energy to your vehicle so it could then utilize that, and that's some of the research that was done trying to duplicate that effect. How do you get enough energy to produce that that beam ahead of you or to drive the atmosphere out of the way? One of the ways they that had been considered was to have energy beamed to your vehicle, perhaps from space-based sources like microwave energy, that the vehicle could then redirect and focus into the beam ahead of it and blast the energy. You know. So the point was the principle works. The principle of a directed energy air spike that would allow you to reduce drag potentially to almost nothing, oh, it definitely works. It's been proven in the experimentation. It's Clearly, it's you know it, it can it can be demonstrated, but we don't have the way. At least as of the writing, um, we still don't have the way. From what I understand now, to produce it on board a vehicle. So even if we know how it works, it doesn't mean we can do it. Yeah, you can't get and, the power. You can't you can't produce that much power. Um, yeah, and, and airborne and what lasers else? where they they had yeah. to use the entire aircraft, the giant. Uh, like 707, whatever, a, a yeah, passenger aircraft, yeah. the entire thing was filled with capacitors just to run a laser for, you know, a <laughs> exactly. few seconds. Not a lot of room for anything else, right? Yeah, yeah but at least, and you know how it's flying. It's flying based on principles of aerodynamics that we yes. know already. In the case of what Ray had, you know, the best we could come up with was if you could somehow launch a, uh, a, a vehicle into 
into the sky using energy projected from below, lasers or some other kind of directed energy from below, then your vehicle doesn't have to be carrying onboard fuel. Or at least you would you would obviate the need for having extra weight to carry your fuel on board. And if you got high enough to where now the ground-based, you know, laser or emitter could no longer get to you well if you had something up in space that could now fire downwards towards you then you'd be able to actually redirect that energy in front of you yeah or if uh, you on use, paper it works great <laughs> or if you used um uh what's it called uh, the the fugates uh, uh atmospheric uh, um uh, optical uh well yeah exactly there's the point if you uh, the, the light craft that had been experimented on basically took advantage of the fact that if and if I'm paraphrasing badly here back in the Star Wars days when we were working on all these high powered lasers yeah. for all of these sorts of things and and this was the this was the time of uh, uh that Benowitz was looking at this stuff late 70s early 80s yeah now i think there were two th- this is just my thinking if from you know looking at the Benowitz stuff and such going on there was the experimentation and development of high-powered lasers for what you were describing, the ability to put them on an aircraft that could shoot down missiles as they launch or come in or whatever else, the uh, spaceborne or airborne laser tests. Right. In the case of the Starfire optical range... Adaptive optics, that's what I was trying to say. Adaptive, yes. The Starfire optical range... Uh, you know, the adaptive optics was being used because it gave them much better imaging capabilities. You wrote about this in your book and the ability to identify yeah. what you're looking yeah, I at. I think my point was that the, the adaptive optics principle could be used to focus a laser much higher into the atmosphere and with more um, uh, the strength, uh, the same strength as not, not losing too much strength of the laser and the energy when it got there because it would keep the, um, yes. the, the, yeah, the atmosphere you- from breaking it up. Um, yeah, by, rather by than refocusing, having, refocusing it as it's going up, I think if it's coming down, exactly. you could you could do the thing in the opposite direction. Yeah, that's exactly right. The point was to keep the, the have the laser still maintain its coherence once it's getting up to the upper edges of the atmosphere yeah. instead of bloomed out. My thinking was yes, being able to adapt the mirrors also works optically because you can see what you're looking at. You get much crisper images. You showed several of them in your book. But if you can now fire a laser, that's much more of a weapons potential. So I can certainly see, whereas Kirtland being the directed energy directorate, and you've got adaptive optics to be sure your lasers or anything along that beam is going to maintain its you know, energy level, then I have, I've often Coherence, wondered if that's yeah. what they were doing. You know, you're gonna, the satellite comes overhead and you just burn him up. You know, you just hit well, him they, with a laser. They say they're doing that now. I mean, they come right out and say, yeah, we, we kill satellites with lasers from the ground. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, that, if you're in the defense business, you know, why wouldn't you? If you, could, if you could do it without having to spend all the money to go out there. Yeah. But, but yeah, but so the point is all of that was going on around where – around Kirtland at the time. Right. Um, most of that kind of research <clears throat> was done either out of view, so you didn't have spies photographing from the rooftop. Um, I know the trussle that you showed for where they were doing the radar cross-sections or some type of testing was, was out there. But, um, uh, but even for then... For uh, 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 energy pulse like you have in a... Uh, 
an atomic blast. They wanted to make sure that on uh-huh. onboard systems in um, aircraft would not be affected by the um, EMF pulse from a nuclear gotcha. detonation. Gotcha. That's that's what the trestle was for. Gotcha. So it's still but there when you say, fly into Albuquerque, yeah. you can see it. It's huge. But that work, and we talked about this a little bit before the show went on. That kind of work, the Starfire optical range work. You look at the films, the things that Paul got on film, none of the other that I see has any bearing on what Paul got on film. Whatever he got on film was on his side of the mountain, taken off and going and coming from it, and he got all that on film. The other stuff that's going on obviously either suggests somebody was coming and going because of the nature of the work that was going on around Kirtland or what Paul saw and filmed was in some way <laughs> the nature of some of the work that had been going around Kirtland. That I don't know. Um, well, you did make the point in the, in the book that when uh, what Paul was looking at and filming, you said that uh, many of the Kirtland documents that were released, the uh, complaint form showing that something had gone into the weapons storage area, etc., your uh, idea, your theory, and it, it sounded um, sound to me, was that these things were put out there basically to chum the water or, or muddy the waters, really. It'd say, okay, there's UFOs flying in here, and if you bring in the UFO thing, automatically a lot of people don't pay any attention anymore. And the people you want to have paying attention, you can, you can see who those people are. Because most people go, ah, stupid UFO stories. The people who are still paying attention are the people you want to pay attention to and see um, what their interest is. And so basically they're throwing these things out. Yes, there's UFOs around here. Who's interested in the UFOs around here? And that these things were not records of information, not informational records of something that had happened, but were disinformation and lies so that um, they could... uh, they could encourage the myth that there was uh, there's kind of a, a UFO um, flap going on around Kirtland, not that they were testing things that looked unconventional. Yeah, that pretty well covers it. I think the way I would have – the specifics I would have put into it are we have a lot of documents that took place and around the middle to the fall in 1980 at a time when – that was well past when Paul, you know, the sole reason Paul ever called the Air Force to begin with, which was way back in January, December, January of 1980. The documents and everything that most people are familiar with, what, what are commonly called the Kirtland documents, right. talk about things that supposedly happened that there really is no hard evidence that any of those kinds of things happen. The helicopter mechanic that's a story that was supposedly put out. We've got the guards on the mountains who supposedly saw something coming and going. Yep, but landed. What, yeah, what you'll notice is they only, in those documents, they mention Paul, but not in any way, shape, or form that would at all hint to the fact that Paul called them back in January, is when I believe it was, about these... Of uh, 79? No, January of 1980. Oh, okay. Keep in mind, because of the document that Ernest Edwards wrote about his conversation with the uh, guys that had come to talk to him from Sandia Security, where he says, first contact with Paul Benowitz, January of 1980. Mm-hmm. So my understanding is Paul got hit, and I did some you know, checking of weather and the moon from what things Paul wrote. The best I was able to determine is Paul probably got his films sometime about the middle of December of 79. Because he said he had still had some film from his last trip up to uh, the Dulce area. But, so he got those films and got them developed and probably was looking at them. 
And somewhere in January, he calls the Air Force to talk to them about it because, and I asked him why, and he said, well, he, as far as he knew, they had no idea these things were coming and going because there had never been any reaction. He didn't see any, you know, no, no lights or sirens or anything going on. So he thought potentially, you know, that he was doing his duty to at least call them and advise them that he had seen these things coming and going and had film of it. Unfortunately, kind of let the cat out of the bag, I guess you'd say. But um, but all the documents that came out, my sense now is they were there not only to misdirect people. Everybody would start looking for MJ-12 and Project Aquarius and all of that, and I did some of that myself. And if you began to try to dig into all of that, you would also get the impression that Paul Benowitz was a part of all that. He was just a small part of these other documents that had come out, official documents that supposedly attested to UFO sightings on around the base. I think it was all intended as a smokescreen and to muddy the waters and get everybody busy doing other things and not have anyone ask you know, about uh, what Paul actually had on film because I had no idea of what he had on film until I talked to him. And he said, oh, I called him about those things I filmed. And I was like, what? <laughs> that was the first I realized that he had these films months, months, months before any of this other material you know, kind of became, began to come out. I think it just became a necessity because of who he was and that he was beginning to contact people outside the Kirtland area. And I think at that point there was some need to defuse him any way that they could. But, um, but what, he got, what he got on film – I don't know. Uh, you know, he got something definitely, and I, I think the reaction. Feel free to stop me if you have a question. But my thought about no, no, go ahead. I, w I wanted you to continue with this thought. I was thinking about this today, what might have happened if the Air Force had just said, "Hey, that's some weird stuff, Paul. We have no idea what you got," and dropped him like a hot potato. I guess what concerns me is. Well, he would have started writing to uh, like he like he did write to did, his yes. congressmen and senators and and uh, President Reagan and everything, saying, "Hey, this yeah. this weird stuff's going on." So I think they were trying to damage control that too. I agree, and the, I mean, there therein is the thing. Then, so okay, what might that say about? Well, I'll be, let me back up for one second and just kind of give it a different take it a different take on it. Mm -hmm. If he just had seen something flying over Kirtland and got this film and called the Air Force and said, I saw this thing flying over Kirtland and I got this film of it. And they had been like, we have no idea what that is. Call the White House. And he'd started writing everybody. What? <laughs> it would have gone nowhere because eventually people would think, so you filmed something. We have no idea what it is. End of story. In other words, it was not sitting in somebody's, it wasn't a hot potato in somebody's hands. They, they were stuck with it. But what he saw f that he filmed coming off of Kirtland, it was very dark. And I wondered why, you know, what if they had just looked at him and said, Paul, we have no idea what you got. That's weird stuff. What, you know, but you're right. He began to write. What would have made him credible enough if he'd written to the White House or called Los Alamos or began to contact other people? That would have made it so much of a – what would have been the biggest concern that would have made it so important to go at him the way they did? All the documents, all the next 10 years, all the people that knew something about it. Um, 
Uh, I always I I I put it down to overdriven paranoia on the part of uh, people who were supposed to be in charge of security for these projects. And the, yeah, and there to me, and that may very well be the thing, you know, but at the same point in time, I think there has to have been something either they thought he might have or they knew he did have or something there had to have been or maybe the actual films were clear enough that you would have been able to pull out more information out of the actual film as opposed to, you know, the ones he took that he sent around where he just snapped them off of his editor and so you've got a second or third generation copy of it. Right. They're still they're still terrific, but even he had told me the colors and everything on the original are much brighter. But my I guess the question, and I don't have an answer for it, it's just I'm throwing it out there, was what would have made it worth more what would have been the level of paranoia enough about whatever they thought he might have been able to do or somebody might have believed him and brought down on their heads if the you know if they just said we have no idea what this guy got he says it was taken from here but we don't know they could have played dumb but something makes me that's my my point is i guess but they didn't and they went through the next years even to this day you know Dodie's still towing the party line on it Something tells me there must have been something that could have been brought home to roost that they might have been – and they needed to continually defuse Paul every single way they could. I wish I knew what it was, but for some reason they – Okay. I, I never speculated in that direction. It, it's uh, it's certainly a possibility. Um, yeah. I just I something mean, makes what I think thought you were it, pushing at was, look, he was filming something that was – they were working on. There's technology involved. If you can guess what that technology is combined with other things that uh, – other agents and people and sources of information and human and, 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 and signals intelligence are putting together from another country, that you might be able to put something together and reproduce the – yeah, reproduce the, uh, yeah, reproduce the right. uh, stuff. And you're, what you're implying is that there's some – something – Something darker or some sort of malfeasance going on. No, I, well, I don't mean to do that. That's that wasn't what more I was thinking. I'm just I oh, was okay. just thinking of they could have just shrugged and said, "Nice pictures, Paul. What are they?" Yeah, and played dumb. And where would this? Maybe it would have just died out anyway. Yeah, well, I just but explained to they, you the reason yeah, why I think that they was. Didn't. And I and it we mentioned this we were talking earlier that it very well might have been that if you let this get out and he's credible enough or someone looks at the images enough to realize. This is something. And they began to think, you know, whether it's the Russians or the whoever else, they began to think that we're doing something at Kirtland. Then you bring a whole lot of undue attention down on the base from who knows who, looking at everything that you've got going there, trying to find out what they can about whatever this guy filmed. Right. I don't know. Speculate. Right, right. It's the same but, thing that happened at Area 51. They just they kept grabbing more land and probably spreading more rumors about UFOs and, and aliens and back engineering and all this stuff so that – the only people looking are one, their fringe element, and two, they're so damn far away. There's nothing you can figure out anyway. Um, it's just it just becomes a, a mystery, and it stays a mystery. And they want to leave it a mystery, not with you know they don't want somebody five miles away staying on top of a mountain with with high powered lenses looking at these things. And in Paul's yeah. case, he was only what like three four miles away. No, two miles. Two he miles. Actually, he wrote that the distance from his roof. To the base of the mountain behind where he was 
seeing these in the direction he was seeing was two miles. So you're somewhere between a mile and two miles. I'm betting maybe a mile and a half and two miles because you figure it couldn't have been any further than the base of the mountain or they would have been up on the side. Yeah. You know, the mountain itself. Well, the, the, the whole it, thing here is perception management. And I think part of it was a perception of what he was doing, managing that, and also a perception of what people thought he was doing. His perception and other people that knew what he was doing, their perception. And um, if, it, if it leads towards junk then most people will ignore it. And the people that don't ignore it are the kind of people you want to pay attention to. So that's why I thought that was my always my idea as to why um, anybody paid attention to Paul when he came in and started complaining about it in the first place. It's just kind of like, uh, we'd rather you not be talking about this to anybody. But if you do, talk to us about it. Yeah, see, something tells me the reaction to this suggests highly they whoever you know whoever was responsible for the area security kirtland whoever else they knew something was going on i mean walking around outside with a flashlight or at least something that looked like a flashlight sounds like a very human thing to do yeah so whether we were flying them or we were riding or we were just greeting i don't know but it's something tells me whatever paul filmed was a known issue or it was supposed to be there at the time that it was oh most definitely so I don't know what that means. Collusion with who knows? <laughs> I hate the term collusion these days, but everybody yeah. knows what it is. Yeah. Um, whether that means there's some agreement or arrangements going on, I don't know. But what Ray got on film is something else. As far, I, as far as I would say, that's not us, not built by anybody here now, especially not back in 1985 or we would have potentially seen something was something i tried to stress in the book and a lot of people have seen there was a tv series on not long uh, a few years back called connections where they showed all the some interesting uh, scientific developments and discoveries that but they showed you how this person built on what he learned from someone else and someone else and you eventually could see these connections so it was evolutionary in a way it seemed like yeah, a I great idea suddenly yeah. came up at the time yeah british guy i think was the was the narrator but um but that was a point that i tried to make in the book was to go back and look and see if you can find any trace of the science having been done before where you can go back and say, okay, well, sure, we've been working on this from way back then. And you can see the developments that led up to this. And now afterwards, you see it, you know, taking off and going wherever. But even just the directed energy air spike, that one tiny little concept that you know, was obvious and it came from Ray's film, you still don't, I mean, yes, after, if you go back and look at the papers that were done after the publication of that, you see all sorts of intriguing possibilities coming out from directional, you know, control and different things by changing the atmospheric densities on either sides of, you know, lots of interesting work coming out afterwards, almost none before, but you don't see, to my knowledge, at least not I have, we have not seen any aircraft flying around out there right now of ours with a pulsed directed energy beam being used to go out there and reduce drag. You know, we don't, we don't see that yet. And 30 years later, that tells me that was not something that anybody around these parts built back in 1985. It was something altogether different. That doesn't mean it was manned. I mean, maybe it was drones by from who knows where, but clearly with six or seven of these things flying around, this was not just a prototype of somebody, you know, doing something. It was something altogether different. Mm -hmm. But um, so Ray Ray took this film in Corpus Christi in 1985. Yes. Okay. The the one that you're talking. We've been talking about this whole time. Yeah, the one we've been talking about. Right. All right. Um, But anyway, and like I said, though, that's. 
there are – I agree with everybody I, – I can – let me put it – I can understand with the people who are frustrated because of the things that Ray has talked about that has not been shown. Although there are certain bits of pieces of film that he's done that have been shown um, over in Belgium at a conference several years back. A professor by the name of Meeson showed uh, a bit of an image from a frame that Ray had taken um, over out of an airplane window out of uh, coming out of Mexico some years ago that I've looked at frames of that film and some of the uh, patterns that you can see in there are things that Ray found and that I think people who know enough to know what they're looking at recognize and one of the frame of that film was mentioned by this professor in a lecture he gave at some big symposium over in Belgium years ago so people have seen these films I mean the point is it's not like nobody has seen them you know you mentioned Chris O'Brien and me and you know who have yes and but there are plenty of other people with names you would really recognize who have been to Ray's house and have seen what he's got and believe me I mean I've spent hours and hours and hours on some of these images and Photoshop and trying to enhance them and pulling little things out and and there are certain things that I've saw in these things that I know Ray has shown some of those in other images and there's things to be found and there are parts of things that I've told him that's structure. I mean, one little one that comes to my mind that I can look at and I am convinced that's a piece of structure on one of these huge mothership-like things. And Ray argues with me about it and that's fine. It's not, it doesn't make or break the film, but, um, but he's got some profound stuff. And like I said, I just hope he will release it soon enough for people to see it. Maybe he will finally. Mm-hmm. What last time we talked, we talked a little bit about uh, Lear, John Lear, and his role in this because he came in kind of late and started talking with Paul Benowitz. What I found interesting that you talked about was that uh, Lear's background for Air America, and somehow he appeared on the scene very quickly in the in the mid to late 1980s and started talking to Paul and also started uh, supporting all kinds of weird stories like Bill Cooper's story or the O.H. Krill memo and all that stuff, which you said that Lear said that he made up. So what role was John Lear playing? I mean, was he still working for somebody doing counterintelligence or what? Because the way you portrayed it, sound, that sounds like exactly what he's doing. He wasn't just a crazy hobbyist. <laughs> you know, that's that's an interesting one. I. I let me preface everything that I'm. If I m- answer, ask something where I'm way off base, you please tell me. You can. I, I don't think it's rude. I mean, I, I want to make. I no, want to make I, your p- opinion clear. No, I mean, I, you're paraphrasing things just fine, as far as I know. I mean, I think that the take on things that I have now, and I guess getting a little bit older, you know, you kind of look back at things, and and I would want to preface this by saying, Lear is a fun guy i mean i liked john a lot i mean by and large he's an entertaining hospitable guy to this day you know if it was just on any other topic lear would be a terrific guy i think you know and even back then he was and so i i just want i've heard the same thing from other people yeah i don't have any uh, yeah i don't know this may be like all these old politicians in office that some Republicans, some Democrats, and they butt heads over certain things, but they're all friends. They go back years and years and years, and at the end of the day, you all know you're you're all working towards to, to do the best you can. And to this day, the same way kind of that I feel about um, 
a lot of the people the people involved in the Benowitz case. I didn't know, and I do have I have a serious problem with what the way Paul was treated. Yes, I don't, most people do. Yeah, yeah, and I, there was there's I. I I'd be willing to listen to the explanation for why that was okay. I mean, I'm not know if I could buy it or not, but but the point is, even people I spoke with, like Ernest Edwards, who I don't have any doubt that these are patriotic, you know, good-hearted people. They love their families and friends like everybody else does, and you're put in a position of having to do a job and uphold what you're said to do. My point is, so I don't really know what. What was you know at the end of the day? Yeah, what, what made this all you know, this worth? Paul, poor yeah. Paul's sanity. I'm a, but I, not that he did. Not that it wouldn't have happened anyway. They just they had no problem helping him get wor- become worse and worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To to just let it go, right? Because yeah, well, they weren't trying to make him crazy. They were just saying, look, look over here, look over here, look over here. Yeah, you're right about that. Yeah, look over here. Not towards whatever it is that we're talking about here. But well, you know, it, and I, I will say this to just to qualify that, um, Paul's discussions of you know, I might have understood if you were just basically going to listen to what he was showing you and go, hmm, that's strange, and then not tell him to stop or just let it yeah, go, just just ignore him. There was an aspect of this, though, that began to hit home to me when I was working in the book and I began to realize, wait a minute, you know, the directed energy directorate deal. This was pretty new way back in those days around Kirtland. Yeah. And um, and Bill had even mentioned this as well. But the idea of Paul having talked about seeing these small little glowing orbs of light or spots of light that seemed to uh, – he'd see them in his – his house. Yeah, near and, the ceiling. Yeah, near the ceiling and in certain places. And it was said to me very clearly, and if one of these things touched your skin, it would sting like the dickens. Now, and I do recall another instance in which, and of course I think Bill mentioned that, and I think you described some of those in your book. The idea that Paul had described it to me, other people apparently have described seeing it, tends to make me think, must have been something going on. Now, years ago, I spoke to Linda Howe, um, and asked her, I don't recall what it was I was talking to her about, but I brought up this whole idea of these little glowing balls of light thing and stinging because at the time there was a lot of – there were a lot of articles being written about the directed energy and man-portable weapons and laser weapons that you would be – you know, there was no miss when you pull the trigger, it hits you. And, of course, a lot of people have read about the uh, um, millimeter wave or submillimeter wave um, microwave – what they call the area denial weapons. Act, or, active <laughs> denial yeah. system. Active denial. Which yeah, basically means system. you fry somebody's uh, skin from the outside and they go, ah, and they get out of yeah. the way because you, it's very uncomfortable and hot. in there to make them jump. That's right. Now, you begin to realize, now, wait a minute. And I read a book called E-Bomb that was uh, written by a guy. He was, it was about this, the same kind of information and how they convinced one of the – I guess he was a general or a colonel or someone, that they could do this and it would work. They sat him down and put his hand under a little piece of equipment, and when they <laughs> turned it on, he jumped out of that seat fast. And it was a proof of concept that just showed, yeah, you can just basically heat up you know, the, just, just the water layer, layer just below your skin where the pain cells are, yeah. hit those things, and you don't really damage – Hopefully, you don't damage anybody permanently, but anybody caught in that beam is going to get the heck out of there as fast as they can because they're going to feel like they're on fire. Yeah. So 
And I began to read all of this stuff coming out, and I realized, wow, that does sound eerily like Paul's descriptions of being hit with these little beams or these little lights that would, you know. And I began, and I asked Linda Howe about this one t- at one point, and she said, you know, at one point she had talked to Paul and his wife, and either he had pulled up his sleeve or his wife's sleeve and had these little marks on him, and she asked about that, and he said, well, that's where those little balls hit you. That they left these little marks, and Linda's, I remember her saying, and I thought he had lost his mind, that apparently she saw some of the symptoms, or at least some effects on their arms of where these little things had been hitting them. I don't know how bad it was. Oh, I, in the book I said that, he, that somebody was, he said somebody was coming into his house at night and injecting him with chemicals, quote unquote. Well, yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I'm just talking about... Which is about, a whole other ball of, yeah, of, whole of scariness. Yeah, but the idea to me, I began to I began to wonder. Now, wait a minute. Would it have been possible to use beams that were low enough energy that individually they wouldn't do anything? But if you crisscross them at some point across the street and inside somebody else's house, I don't know whether you could go through walls with it. But you see my point. My point is like like when they're doing targeting cancer in someone's brain, and they can crisscross two lower powered beams and irradiate a specific spot by hitting just where those beams crisscross. Oh, no, they were doing that with lasers, trying to uh, shoot things out of the sky by, uh, what's it called, phase conjugation. Well, then there you go. I began to think, well, I wonder if it's possible for somebody to have actually done something like that that would create a small, apparently glowing little tiny ball of an area inside Paul's house. And if you were able to manipulate that to where it would just touch him, and of course, if he tells anybody about that, you're going to think he's lost his mind. Right. But that, the reason I brought that up was when you mentioned the fact that would they be, have actively been trying to in some way make him crazier? Well, that's a little more than just shrugging and saying we don't know what it is and letting him go on doing what he's doing. When you're taking an active role and trying to instigate little things that are going to make a person crazy, and the more he talks about it, the crazier he's going to sound. So, I don't know. I have questions about all of that. I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. We'll never. I don't know. We'll ever have answers to all of that kind of thing. But as far as other people that were involved in it, clearly whatever went on was significant enough that it it was ongoing for at least the next nine or ten years for certain. To some degree, it's still being maintained. The more people are willing to just talk or doty or whomever else, but. What the rationale was for, I don't know, why John Lear injected himself into the middle of it, um, I don't know. But it was very clear to me and my friend Tom, Tom Bland, and uh, and, and Dale Gowdy when we were in Washington, which is where I first met John. He had uh, Apparently, he'd been talking to Dale for some time before that, and when we were all checking this, at the hotel. This is Dale Goody from the <laughs> – Dale Goody, yeah, from QFON. Yeah, um, Computer yeah. UFO Network at the time. Yeah, and so John Lear apparently had just flown in because, you know, as far as we knew, he was just someone who had gotten interested recently, and Dale knew him, and hey, John Lear, whatever. As far as we knew, he knew nothing. I mean, nothing that was said to me at the time gave me any impression he was at all knowledgeable about – any of the real nitty-gritty kinds of hot topics of the day, Aquarius, MJ-12, whatever else. And, But then all of a sudden it was later in the hotel room. We were all sitting around talking, 
and suddenly John, I'm trying to recall, John suddenly mentioned something about he knew some people in Turkey at a listening post or something. I may be mis- misphrasing this, but he knew some people in Turkey who apparently were familiar with MJ-12 and whatnot. And it was one of those say what moments where you're sitting there thinking, what did this person just say who I didn't think knew anything? And I remember Tommy Lynn was sitting there and we looked at each other like, what just happened? Yeah. It's, Harry's dropping something now that we're like, wait a minute. What year was this? Um, this was at the conference. I don't recall if it was 86. It was in Washington, D.C. Okay, so this was after the announcement of the MJ-12 documents from Moore, Chandray, and also actually um, uh, Tim Good uh, in uh, probably 83, 84, something like that, very soon after it. Yeah, that was the the MUFON conference was going on in Washington that year, so I'm just guessing. Yeah, if I and you were there for something with seven. Phil Klass, right, yeah, where he was Phil challenging had, uh, Goody and a couple other people. Exactly. Phil Klass had made a challenge based on the uh, some of the Kirtland documents claiming that they were bogus and whatnot. So we he, And he just said, he told Dale, I'll pay for the press club if you want to come and present all your evidence. And since that was pretty much something Tom and I had been working on, heavily at the time, especially Project Aquarius information. Dale invited us, and we all went. And it was on a Friday afternoon or because the, you know, right before the, con- the conference would start. But so John showed up, and when it all began to kind of just blow up was the next day Bill Moore was giving a talk, and he was on stage. And at that moment, he was – you know, I was sitting – I think I was sitting – John was to my left – I don't remember if Tom was on my right or whatnot. But at the end, as it got towards the question and answer session at the end, all of a sudden John stands up and announces in front of everyone to the effect that, well, he's familiar with MJ-12 and he knows some people who know all about MJ-12. And, of course, being John Lear, boom, the light and attention was on him from that moment forward. And I just about slunk down in my seat. Now, I had no reason to – as far as I knew, he was – a guy like everybody else, and he had a good story, and it was true at the time. I didn't know any differently. I just felt like he certainly had not given me any indication or had given anybody, any of us any sign that he did know a thing or two and was wanting to come there and maybe you know, let it out or talk to whoever might be able to do something with it. None of this. It was just suddenly, boom, out of the blue. And feeling sandbagged you know, is like, whoa. So I'm slinking out of my chair, and I'm like, what just – once again, it was like, did he ride in on Dale's coattails or did he come in here under this guise of being a guy who's just interested in this, but he had a plan all along because he suddenly – he never mentioned MJ – I mean he never mentioned that he was going to get up and make an announcement or, or in any way, shape or form had come to Washington to do anything like this. We just thought he was another guy like all of us and we'd all go you know, have coffee and listen to the lectures and whatnot. But after that, of course, you can imagine, John Lear's name went you know, ballistic everywhere. And subsequent to that, I, you know, I still talked to him because you know, it was his play. It wasn't mine, but I didn't have any reason to think there was anything nefarious or whatever you want to call it you know, about it, that there was some scam going on. As far as I knew, it was John Lear, fine. And he got popular, and he was a friendly guy, and he called me several times uh, you know, afterwards, and one time he was in Dallas, and I picked him up, and one time he met him. I, I'd worked for American Airlines for a while, and he was flying through the airport, and I think he brought me a bottle of Crown Royal. It was great. 
you know, he's a nice guy. It was still, you know, still being friendly. And it wasn't until after that when I began to hear him talking about, I think in one radio interview in Dallas, he'd mentioned there are 80 species of aliens visiting this planet or something to that effect. And I was like, oh, my God, where is this coming from? I had no idea. But needless to say, it was sometime after that when I had gone to Vegas at one point and was visiting him at his house. And one of the comments had been made that this person had seen this O.H. Krill memo back when he was in the Navy. And it was uh, um, Cooper. Yeah, yeah, Bill Cooper. And, and of course, I didn't understand why John was saying this to me, but uh, who knows? So, but he said, yeah. And it was funny because in the break, during the interview, he he told me he said, "Yeah, I call Cooper over." And I said, "Why would you say you'd seen this when you're back in the Navy?" He said, "Because this other guy and I made it up." And of course, I'm looking at John like, once again, what did I just hear? <laughs> what do you mean you made this up? And he was saying, "Yeah, there was another." person and i don't recall the name and i don't know if i'd say it maybe he really did see it and lear was just saying he made it (laughs) just to muddy the waters or something not saying that that bill cooper was right or anything like that but to me it sounds like when, when you talk about him and what he was doing then it sounds like he was trying to muddy the waters further for at somebody's behest because what he was saying was disconnected not logical crazy sounding to most people and he's just like this, gosh, oh, oh, yeah, I'm just kind of interested in this stuff. It's kind of like, but no, he's yeah. really, because of who he is, you say he's really affecting what people, which hands of the magician people are paying attention to. Um, yeah, and he, and he got Mayer. a lot of play. I mean, people yeah, did. He became very well known. Because he had a name to go along with it. So yeah. let's hear what this guy has to say. Yeah. But needless to say, after that, when I told him, I said, well, John, I mean. And he did work for the CIA you? for Air America. Yeah. So, you know, there's a background. Yeah, but there. I said, why would you make this thing up? Or at least why would you tell me you made it up? Because I've spent my whole life trying to do something credible and trying to have this looked at seriously. And now to just go around and making up something on O.H. Krill and call the original hostage krill and writing up some memo like this why would you and then telling me about it how am i supposed to still associate with you because otherwise i'm compromised by not breaking you know away from that and that was pretty much the end of you know my right affiliate association or friendliness friendship with john even like i said he's just nice but it wasn't until after that when uh, apparently at some point he was going to God, you know, and it's funny, I hate to say this, but I'm trying to, I'd have to go back and look at my own book to read, to look at what the chronology was, because at some point, somewhere along the line, and I don't, a lot of these things happen within a month or two or three months time span, so I'm not sure which, necessarily hit when, but at some point, there was a Crestone conference, this is when the whole deal with Paul fell apart, and um, Tom okay. Adams, Gary Massey, and a lot of these people were meeting at this area in Colorado called Crestone, and they invited me to go. Yeah, and this gonna- is a fa- famous area of uh, the uh, cattle mutilation mystery, and this was a very early private conference for people that were working. Chris O'Brien was there, and I think David Perkins, too, because yeah, you, Dave Perkins you hadn't there. seen him since that when you saw him in Santa Fe, I think. Or- yeah, no, I hadn't seen him since. It was great to see him. But Linda Howe was there. Sorry. And John John had been invited for whatever, and he said, well, hey, when you fly into Albuquerque, I'll just pick you up. We'll drive up there. And um, and that was fine. Actually, when he picked me up, we drove down to Socorro. And this is the part that confuses me because I'm trying to get the time frame right because I don't recall that I would have actually 
hung out with him, if you want to call it that way, after this O.H. Krill thing. So I may have these dates slightly flipped here. Right. But anyway, we we drove down to Socorro, and I still I was actually looking I just looking at them this morning. I was looking at some pictures of Socorro, and I have some pictures of John Lear on crutches with his one foot in a cast, um, hobbling around on the Arroyo. We stopped by and even met Lonnie Zamora for a few minutes, huh. and we drove up to Crestone. Right. And um, <clears throat> Linda Howe was there, and all you know that. But somewhere after that, when we drove back, they dropped me off at the airport early in the morning. Linda, I believe, was heading for somewhere else. She was riding with John. She rode in the middle between John and me all the way back from like midnight to five in the morning. John went to see Paul Benowitz. And there was something, it was a few weeks later that I got a call from Paul and he was livid. And I was like, I've I'd never heard him angry. I mean, literally just livid angry. And I was like, well, wait, 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 what's going on here? And it turned out it was something to do with John. John had been there visiting him. Um, I'd have to defer to John. I think. Yeah, it was two or three days, I think. But anyway, and apparently the best I could get out of this was that John had either said he would do something or introduce Paul to some people or make some connections or get back with him over something and just dropped it completely. However, that went down between John and Paul. Of course, I wasn't there, but it was enough that made Paul didn't want anything to do with John. He was pissed royally, and I Maybe thought I pulled the same him thing down. on him that he did with you. It's like, oh well, I made that up, and, he, and Paul probably was flabbergasted. I, I do, I don't know, I don't know, but I mean, I Who did knows? the best I could to calm things down and just my my point at that stage was to just get across to Paul that. You know, I have you know I have no control over who goes to see him, and if John got in his car and drove to Paul's place, I couldn't stop that. Yeah. I don't want anybody to, and that's really one of the reasons to this day that I I can be as wrong as the next guy, but I do value my reputation to the point that I don't want anybody riding on my coattails and implying anything. You know, but the point was John wanted to go see Paul. I couldn't. You know, it wasn't my say, and um, anyway, and he stayed there when he left. Paul was so angry, and I did the best I could to calm things down. And it wasn't too long after that that Linda called and asked if I'd spoken to Paul. And I said, not for a few weeks, you know, a couple of weeks or three weeks ago. She goes, because he's disconnected his phone number. And I checked it, and oh, yeah, I gave you the recording. It had been changed, and the family's request, the new number is unlisted. And I, I really – I was 99% sure Paul would give me a call within a few days, and you know, at least I'd know what was going on. But I never talked to him again, never heard from him. Apparently, this was about the time that apparently the family finally had to step in and – have an intervention of some sort or other with him. I don't know what happened after that, but uh, okay. But anyway, so John, the whole deal with John, I would have thought. Yeah, I don't know. Could have been just about anything until the whole business with Laos and Doty came out, and then I began to realize, wait a minute, there's the connection with Lemaside Twenty A, and okay, can that, we go? Can we go through that in probably? Uh, what do we got? We've got uh, 23 minutes, <laughs> <laughs> and we wanted—I wanted to get into your your uh, recent stuff with Socorro, so maybe we can condense this down. What that—that's a very important part of the book. A a site in Laos in the 1970s, um, yeah, early 1970s. Um, that was a CIA outpost there, and uh, Lear definitely was involved with it. And then Doty also says he was, but you found a lot of contradictions in there. Well, I have gone back plenty of times trying to find this stuff out, but it was back when I was working on this book and actually had it almost finished. 
And I stopped and spent another year <laughs> to, to working on the, specifically this specific information that went into the addendum called Lear Doty and uh, Secret Base in Laos or whatever else because I was going back and forth with the a gentleman by the name of Colonel Clayton, who had actually been the commander in charge of the men on top of this listening post at Lima Site 85. A, a mesa but, in the jungle in, in Laos. Yeah, a very steep, narrow top where you practically can't – you have to go only up a certain way, so it's pretty secure unless you know how to scale up the walls. But um, the point was I had been looking at some email addresses that Doty had used – and every so often, just do a search. Just get on there, do a search, see what came up. And one night, I came across a hit on the old History Channel website. They had a whole different set of like message groups where people could go in and talk about things that were of interest. And one of them had, had dealt with <clears throat> these places in Laos and CIA operations and whatnot. But there was a conversation that had gone on about a, a place called Lemosite. I think it was Lemosite 85 at the time, you know, or maybe 20A. But the reason it showed up was because one of the email addresses Doty used had registered there. And I went and looked at whoever had posted and used that email address. And the person had initially posted something saying they had been in Laos back at that time and you know, whatnot. And then had answered or had asked them and answered some questions um, and even had a, made some comments. And all of this is detailed in the book, if I'm not – if I'm paraphrasing it cor- incorrectly. Some comments about having been at Lemosite 85 and then was back at Lemosite 20A. And Lemosite, my understanding is, LS stood for landing site or landing strip. These were little narrow places where the, you know, the CIA had hidden outposts. And we weren't supposed to have any military over in Laos at the time. So the people who were going to go over there. Yeah, LS is landing site L in the uh, phonetic alphabet for pilots is Lima. Yeah. So I guess it'd be Lima Sierra 21, Lima Sierra. But anyway. So So the top of the little mountain strip there on one end of it was where this secret radar little installation was that would direct bombing runs into Hanoi or whatever. But the people that were running it were on paper, like employees of Lockheed, not Lockheed, Rockwell or someplace like this. They were technically not military. Although they actually were military people, they were just... They sheep-dipped into uh, civilian positions. Yeah. So whoever was on the landing strip end of the little range up there, and apparently it was one of these dire little strips where you had to be a really good pilot, maybe flying a pilot port or whatever you call it, porter pilots, little planes like John Uh, Deere. Yeah, uh, uh, STOL, short takeoff landing. uh, Yeah, short. Yeah, so, but the people who were on that end, which is kind of where there was a little shack where the CIA observers and whatnot would be, those people didn't mingle with the guys at the other end because there wasn't, they didn't want to risk that somebody would recognize them back when they're at the military base and say, hey, weren't you the civilian that was, you know, so all of this stuff was fairly secretive and and compartmentalized at the site, yeah. Yeah, which made it difficult because Doty might, if he had by some chance been at the one end where the little landing strip was, but never gone up to the other end to mingle with the Air Force guys, Clayton and his men, then then Clayton wouldn't necessarily have seen him. But what got strange was when I first very first letter I and he was claiming he was on these uh, on these forums at his at the History Channel website on his notes where he's saying yeah I was at this Lima site eighty five and then I was back at Lima site twenty A now the point of twenty A is there's a book written called the most secret place on earth 
And it's about Lima Site 20A, which was like the most secretive CIA base there. You didn't just go in there. 20 Lima Site 20 was on the other side of the mountain. That's where the congressman could kind of go in and do the dog and pony show. 20A on the other side is where Lear and all those guys were flying into. It was called Long Tien. That was the secret place. And this is where Dodi says he was when Lima Site 85 was finally overrun by the Viet Cong. And some people were killed and others barely escaped. And one of the gentlemen who had managed to escape ends up recuperating at Lima Site 20A. And Dodi even says he had talked to this guy at Lima Site 20A. He saw him there after, you know, after the attack. I'm thinking, that's strange. How old is Dodi? But he also made another comment about it. He said not many people know about another site where I think he mentions like five CIA men were killed. And I'm thinking, how does he know so much about who's in the CIA? And he's list, he mentioned CIA like many more times than he mentioned any Air Force people. And I was like, what's – but I could never figure out how he could have been old enough. It was a conflict. If he says he's there – and I did try to exchange some emails with him. You can imagine how that went, trying to find out why is somebody using your email address and you're writing back and forth to me with that email address right now, and it's posted with these notes. But Colonel Clayton, though I spoke with, I remember the first time he wrote me and he said, oh, he knows Richard Doty very well, but he was never at Lima Site 85. And, of course, I'm thinking, well, then how in the heck does he even know this guy? How could he know the one name I'm going to drop on him after all these years if Doty had never had anything to do with Lima Site 85? Why would Clayton even know his name? And there was a whole story behind that. My point is now I have some reasons to be suspicious. We talked about some of this in Santa Fe that just maybe Doty's a little older than he lets on. I can't yeah. prove I can't prove any of that, and I admitted it at the end of the book. I tried the best I could to put a time when John Lear. The point was, here's John Lear claiming to fly into Lima Site 20A, and here's Doty having claimed to have been at Lima Site 20A at least in 68 or 69, whatever that time frame. I couldn't put John back there further than 72, maybe 71, somewhere in that range. So I could never put them both there at the same time to think they might have known or met each other. But what's the coincidence that? 10 years later or you know what 20 years however long it was from 1980 to 72 anyway 70 10 years later involved in this both story. these guys yeah both of them are suddenly involved in a UFO case coming out of Kirtland but they're on basically opposite sides of the fence if you look at it that way that was just too much of a coincidence for me there i yeah. my gut feeling is there's something there but maybe one of these days somebody will fill in the blanks on that one yeah but it was a fascinating story in itself yeah, for details on that, you can pick up X Descending, and it, it is a fascinating story. Nobody else has discussed this at all, and it's something that Chris found out on his own just by doing some searches and then actually interacting with uh, both Lear and Doty. Far, I've only talked to John Lear maybe once or twice, and it was just in passing. It wasn't any big deal. Um, Richard Doty I've talked to probably in depth two or three times, and now he won't talk to any to me anymore. <laughs> Um, but uh, th this is another fascinating part of the story that m most people have never really discussed, uh, which is pro which is uh, the main reason why I wanted to have um, uh, Chris on again to talk about this. Um, you said you wanted to talk about, and I want to hear about, your looking into the Socorro story and some of the, the Socorro uh, sighting uh, uh, incident and some of the little-known um, details of that story that people don't really discuss too much. You were going there right after um, we met in Santa Fe. You headed that way. 
So what, yeah, what, is, I, what, what, actually, you, what is your project with Socorro right now? <laughs> well, it's interesting because I'm in Austin, Texas now, and I moved here primarily because I have an interest in uh, screenwriting and film work as well. And, um, of course, my art background goes back years and years, and way back in the day, um, I had thought about doing an illustrated book and with some of the most visual UFO sightings available. Back, back then, it was pre-Photoshop by a long time, and um, it just got to be too much of a long process to try to research them to do them right. But I did do a painting on Socorro. And Which you in still the process, have. I would love to see yeah. it. And it's around on the internet too, from the looks of it. Huh. But, uh, but the point is, um, part of what killed the whole process was when you're trying to really do the research to be sure you've got a good one and that you know it's accurate and you're not going to get called on making a mistake. I mean, you know, just trying to be very, very careful about it. Um, at several things happened at the time. Of course, one of them was I found Ray Sanford's book. That's how he and I ended up being friends. It's our yeah, book. Sakura Saucer and Pentagon yeah. Pantry. Yeah. Highly recommend. He was one of the first people on the, on the spot. He was there before and, the Air Force, actually. Um, not right. actually. A couple of really? days later. The Air Force got Oh, okay, okay. So he was the there Lorenzo. before APRO or anybody else? Yeah, well, the, no. The APRO, the Lorenzans were the first ones. That's right. Well, going to back up and say the FBI and the Army were the first ones there, technically. And APRO heard about it Saturday, drove overnight, and got there before the Air Force guys, the Blue Book guys, actually showed up. <laughs> so, And there's a, some really good information that I've been able to find in some of the old APRO documents and things that Coral especially had written that are very, I think, have a very good bearing on my interest in this. But the point was I also ended up having some conversations with Lonnie and because I was working on the painting at the time. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to make sure I got everything detailed correctly. And so I'd called him on the phone. I've got them recordings here that I'm hoping to use in this thing I'm working on. But um, – and he was very open and nice and willing to talk. And of course, I, I heard that. I've heard that from everybody. Yeah, and um, and I explained what I was trying to do and asked him if I could, you know, could I send him some small sketches of different angles and different certain different things, um, just to make sure that I did the best I could to represent it the way he saw it. Um, so I sent two or three pages with little tiny sketches, diagrams of the object. Was it this way? Was it that way? Was the landing gear like this or like that? You know, what else? And um, but what I noted in the first conversation or second conversation with him was when it came to describing the symbol, he described something I'd never seen or heard anywhere else. And that got my attention. Um, not only that, he mentioned there was a woman who apparently had, I believe, heard the object coming down and had seen him trying to get up the ridge to get to it, called him a day or two later just to tell him, you know, that she wanted to back his support. She didn't want to be, she didn't want her name to get out, but he did mention some things that were very telling. And I've gone back and listened to the conversations and he's made a point to repeat these points enough that me personally, I believed him. He had no reason. And when I sent him sketches, I included all the common things that people have seen and the one he described differently, and he even redrew it for me. So those are aspects of it. And having gone back now and looked at all the documents and you look at things that are drawn, and I've gotten to know uh, 
Richard Holder, who was the army officer that was there, um, had contacted his son, Richard Holder Jr., had contacted Ray, and subsequently I got you know, to talk to him, and we've been pretty good friends, I think, now. And um, he's told me a lot of things about his father's opinion of the case. And at some, at one point, I finally had a few years back. Ray and I were talking, and I think it may have been even at the 50th anniversary. I thought, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a short trailer, just something. I was learning Maya 3D animation, trying to do something realistic. You know, what I wanted to do with my book, trying to do it nowadays in, in computer graphics to make it look real. And um, I thought, I wonder if I could do a small, small trailer. Maybe I'd publicize my book a little too, since I have an addendum on it in there. And it began to grow and it it's gotten better and I thought you know this could be a short film and when you look at all the information that's there I began to realize I want to do something that tells it straight that gets it as right as right can be you know I want to try to get it right that's the point to put in there all the questions you know Ray and I don't agree on on every aspect of it that's fine you know I'm sure some of the most famous scientists in the world haven't agreed on every aspect of everything but to present the evidence and follow it where it goes and show a lot of the other information that I think points to a lot of, I don't know if you want to call it conspiracy or not, because if you go back and look at the documents that are out there that are on the Socorro case, you'll realize that what's being said in one place is retyped and changed completely in another and even what Hector Quintanilla wrote in his manuscript isn't exactly what's in the other documents. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty clear. This, this is the blue book had at the time. Yeah, yeah. Somebody's obviously changing things around. And what's in the archives isn't what's being stated in these. And I, and at one point I'd even gone to the FBI. I think I'm going to have to refile it again to ask them for a document. They have a document that indicates some information that – the FBI agent took back to them and they had copies of it and they have sandbagged me on that. And I said, this is what I asked for. Look at that. See that? That's what I asked you for. Well, I think we sent you what, and I guarantee you it's when I realized they are not. So I'm going to have to pursue that as well. But the whole point is I think it's, I want to do a program. So I'm working on a documentary film that not only shows you as visually as possible, what it would have looked like, what it would have been like there, accurate based on his what Zamora told me, his sketches, put in some of his own voice talking about these things, but also delve into the aftermath. Once the Army and the FBI got into it, once that Friday night came and went by 1 o'clock when they took their reports and took them to the headquarters at White Sands and the FBI guy went back and you begin to see things going and the, F, the Blue Book guys step in and they try to get in here and and it's a, it becomes a really interesting, almost a <laughs> uh, espionage kind of a aspect of it there. But yeah, it's a it's a case that's been around for a while, but to this day still unexplained. I don't ever think it's been done correctly or it's been treated the way it should be with all the all of the details put into it to show people why this case was such a startling one. Um, not to mention that he saw the two little men. <laughs> You know, out by this thing when he first drove up on it, those things that not a lot of people are aware of. But um, but believe me, when I was in Socorro, <laughs> you, you, people ask you, "What are you asking for?" And even the lady at the police station, there, little old lady, when she realized you're asking about Lonnie, and they all hold him in very high regard. And suddenly, everybody's got a little story to tell. You should go talk to this person. You know, you should maybe call that guy. And um, I'm hoping to get back and do more of that 
when I get a chance. Yeah, but I need well, to, while there's still people some, around that were <laughs> that are very close to it and other witnesses and all that. Yeah, I need to, might need some drone footage, so I may have to hire you for some of that. <laughs> oh, I'll come out. I, I'll I'll actually be there in a, in about a, a little over a month. I, I I'll give you. I'll tell you when I'm going to be out in New Mexico. Actually, no kidding. Well, maybe we'll work something out. <laughs> but anyway, I'm hoping to get it done. I mean, I'm working on a, a little trailer right now because I'm probably going to do a, a little crowdfunding campaign. I'll let you know when the when the time comes to see if I can get a little bit of extra funding to cover some expenses to get this thing made. But uh, it's looking. It's looking pretty good so far. I mean, think when I haven't looked at it in a while and I go back and look at some of the footage, it looks it looks pretty interesting, I think. So hopefully it'll go well and I'll let everybody know. <laughs> all right. I didn't get to all my questions, but if I do, we're going to go right back into <laughs> the well, X descending one stuff. We'll make it, ask one question or ask any you want. we got five minutes. We'll do what we can. Okay. At this point, because you talk quite a bit in the book about uh, – Bill Moore, Bruce Maccabee, a few others. How much of you think how how much of ufology is compromised at this point? I always get that question, and my answer is I don't think it is. I think they've already gone past this, and they're um, whoever is trying to pull up this information is either the the worst that it is at this point is they're just mining um, uh, civilian databases, and that's about it. Uh, I don't think they're trying to control what people look at or. Um, uh, spread too much disinfo or anything like that. I I really don't think that's going on because it's much better to just do it under the guise of being part of uh, the 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 field instead of infiltrating the field. Uh, and the, the well, I don't you know I don't know this whole to the stars relation to the uh, HIP program and that's been going on all this time. I think if only because the people that are involved in this stuff have my utmost respect. They all have always been credible people and whatever anyone wants to say, I think these people are at least well-intentioned. Do I think there's some involvement with, there's still some strings behind the scenes either through the DIA all the way to the, to the stars thing. Yeah, I think there probably is the fact that it's kind of come out above board now suggests to me that it's working, it's going out of the phase of behind the scenes, getting into the databases, finding what you've got. Somebody's got enough information now to start working on something or towards something. Um, I don't know whether it's the phenomenon itself is eventually just going to become so apparent that there's no point in waiting and doing something afterwards. You may as well get ahead of the curve and start on it. Or maybe they're aware of the fact that other places are already working on this. I mean, to make a, maybe a poor analogy, but, you know, how is it? <laughs> Feynman said, he thinks it's safe to say nobody understands quantum physics, but that doesn't mean we're not working with it and building computer systems based on it. So it may very well be that if no one necessarily has a full grasp of the UFO phenomenon, I think they're already going past it now. As far as ufology goes, I don't know if it's going to become moot. It probably will the minute things break loose. Probably with the advent of the To the Stars program, organizations like MUFON and those places, any information that's been available for 10 years, I'm sure they had a chance to look at all of it. And far better because they had access to the Tic Tac videos, those kind of information coming out of the sources. And I'm not deep into that. I don't spend a lot of time, but I have looked into it. And I think there's enough connections to be said that – 
MUFON, those kind of organizations, I think, are pretty well moot at this point. Any data that needed to be had has been looked at. And once you go into the research and development area like they're doing with To The Stars, that probably tells you somebody out there has already you know, got enough clues to start working on it. More power yeah, to them. Or you know? had enough clues way before now when they decided to say something about it in December of last year. Or actually yeah. October of last year. You know, it's an interesting point when you think about the fact that if you looked at what David Fravor and all the and the radar analysts from the Nimitz and the Princeton talked about, that these waves of these things coming by that seem to have no interest in us at all. You know, they didn't seem to pay any attention. They weren't attacking the ships. If nothing else, they just stayed out of the way and then moved on. But were so obvious yeah. that they were. It's almost like a parade. And if you're going to be that obvious and you're not trying to hide anymore, how long before it becomes so public? knowledge that at some point i think it's just moot to try to ignore it and maybe this is the program that the way things have shifted now mm -hmm. i mean you know that it's just and now it's gone into phase two which is you're no longer just trying to look at what you're going to do you're ready to start something you hire people you get building on it and um you know, I guess if it all comes out, you and I'll be free to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> so, know, so funny you say that because um, in 1989, when Moore made, made that speech in Las Vegas, he said, do any of you have any idea what you'll do if somebody just says this is what it is? You, yeah. What are you going to go do? You well, know, and I don't it, think it, a lot of these people have any idea what to do, except it, for if an explanation is forthcoming that unless it makes sense to people or flatters their prejudices about uh, the extraterrestrial hypothesis or whatever it is, they will reject it and continue on that way. But at that point, like you said, I think it'll be moot because it's like, well, the official officialdom has says, said this, and we're just going to believe them as long as, as, as it, it is comprehensible to most people in a way that's you know sim simply understandable in a, in a soundbite way. Because if it isn't, well, people will reject it. You know, I think psychologically, I think if you look at the reason people are interested in this, at least me and many of the friends that I know of, is we want to know what the answer is, but we want the future that seems to ha that that will be a part of. So if there's the right. technology like the to the stars guys are talking about, if they're getting technology, if you know, if they land on the White House lawn and say, here it is, you can build these things now and do whatever you want to do, that freedom and that sense of adventure and that. So, you know, so your interest in this isn't just to know they exist. The interest is how are they doing what they're doing because what future will that mean for all of the rest of us if we can get that? And so in a way, right. if somebody comes out and discovers it or reveals it, fine. We don't have to keep working on that aspect. We can go to phase two. <laughs> so anyway, we'll see when the time comes. I hope it works out for everybody. Yeah, I hope so, too. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for being on with me again for these couple hours and putting up with po possibly um, uh, inaccurate questions and, and correcting me a little bit. I think we have more to talk about in the future and maybe more to do actually with the phenomenon itself and what you've found out over the years rather than just this Benowitz stuff and even the uh, Socorro stuff we were talking about. I'd like to get into that with you, too. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to talk about how the phenomena actually affects the people who are interested in it. You know, what are you trying to accomplish and are you doing it with the way you've been doing it? And I don't know that I think ufology has necessarily been doing it. It's been doing it the same way it's been doing it for 50 years. All right, Chris, thanks so much. Oh, you know what? I didn't ask you at the beginning the thing, uh, musical selection. 
<laughs> Your choice. <laughs> really? Fine, yes. Feel free. <laughs> um, I don't have any preference at this point. You did well last time, so I'll give you the choice this time. Whatever you want to hear. Hmm. There is a band from New Orleans that I like a lot called Tuba Skinny. And they play basically uh, traditional like New Orleans jazz. And they play it on the, they play it on the street. Um, and they play in uh, clubs and stuff. How about this? I love Scott Joplin. This is Tuba Skinny doing Maple Leaf Rag with, with a brass band. Well, thanks so much, Chris. Thank you very much. All right. Just a sec. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll turn the mics down here. 